Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight into today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lastly. Well, Brian, we're talking about a uh, interesting topic today, and that is having to do with race in the military, which is something uh, really worth diving into now. A lot of our listeners might be familiar with some of the general history about the military becoming racially integrated in 1948. That's kind of a famous fact, but it was not like an easy switch, one and done process, right? No, not at all. And what I found fascinating about what we are going to talk about this evening is I've spent so much of my professional career studying Vietnam, uh, mm-hmm. the immediacy of the post-Vietnam era, uh, mm-hmm. from uh, every every aspect of air power in Vietnam. And this was a completely new story to me. Yeah, absolutely. So we are joined today by Marv Chewy. He's a former Navy JAG lawyer and military judge, and he has written a new book called Against All Tides, the untold story of the USS Kitty Hawk race riot from Lawrence Hill Books. Thank you so much, Mar, for being here. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be on your program. Yeah, we're real excited to dive into this story. And, you know, there might be a lot of people listening to this who might not have ever heard of this, you know, so-called Kitty Hawk race riot. Um, but before we get to that event itself, one thing that really jumps out at your book from the outset is that there's a lot of context leading up to this event that's really important to the story. So can you describe for us what's going on on the USS Kitty Hawk as we get up to this? Uh, when is this happening? Why are tensions so high around this time? Sure. Well, first of all, to set the scene, the Kitty Hawk is a huge attack carrier, one of the largest warships ever built, about a quarter mile long, a four-acre flight deck, approximately 4,500 crew members. That includes the embarked air squadrons at the time. And it was conducting bombing raids into North Vietnam throughout the the years of the war. But in 1972, it was conducting those raids right off the coast of the Haiphong Harbor. And to set the stage, they had just gotten a new captain, Captain Newsom, who had come aboard just four months before the incident that my book talks about. And he was immediately faced with several interracial assaults, not only on the ship, but also in port in Subic Bay. And we're talking about individual, isolated, usually one-on-one sailors. But he had a very troubling way of dealing with those at what the Navy calls captain's mass. Onboard disciplinary matters are handled on non-judicial punishment, no lawyers, called captain's mass. And whenever he was dealing with a black sailor who was charged, he meted out very harsh punishments. 30 days in a brig, diets of bread and water, busted in rank, maximum pay fines, and so forth. But when white sailors had committed unprovoked assaults against black sailors, in only one instance did he ever bring any discipline to them, and that was a $25 fine. And that clear discrimination, uh, obviously, in a very... It's like a small city floating out there on the ocean. Word got around very quickly, and tensions really were starting to boil as a result of the way he was discriminating against black sailors in those masks. So the event in question, uh, the violent events themselves are really very complicated. There's a lot going on kind of simultaneously. And so can you give us a brief explanation of what actually happened? Absolutely. The Simmering tensions I just mentioned 
were actually brought to the captain's attention. The black sailors, there were only 300 black sailors. That's about 7% of the total crew membership. They met with him twice to talk about that. And despite that, he didn't change what he was doing. And on the evening of October 12, 1972, there were some minor skirmishes going on between black and white sailors, not fighting. Uh, arguments and so forth. And the several Marines, actually two dozen of them, who are the backup security on board a carrier, they came rushing out without orders from anybody, including no Marine officers, and they started confronting these black sailors. And then that escalated when the captain of the Marines ordered them to break up any groups of three or more sailors. And the problem with that is they only broke up groups of three or more black sailors. And this is part of the congressional record of the hearings that went on. The executive officer of the ship was a black officer, and he said that they were only breaking up groups of black sailors. And in doing so, they were arresting them, uh, physically assaulting them with nightsticks and so forth. And as a result, it escalated, and both black and white sailors started picking up makeshift weapons. We're talking wrenches and broken broom handles and so forth. And there were six hours of interracial assaults that followed. And 51 were injured, black and white. And seriously enough for medical records, there were actually many more than that that were injured. And when it was done, they actually had three very serious cases where sailors had to be flown off the ship for further surgeries. And then what followed and what really began the beginning of the racial injustices that I've talked about is that there was a very one-sided investigation. The captain all but ordered the legal officer on the ship and those who were conducting the investigation not to take any statements from black sailors. And that ought to get your attention in a hurry. And of course, it did get the attention of the black sailors on board because they tried to make statements about being assaulted themselves. And when that followed, about two weeks later, they brought charges against 25 black sailors for rioting and assaults and not a single white sailor charged. And if you think about that, six hours of interracial confrontations, but only black sailors were charged and referred to special courts martial trials back in San Diego. So most people we have on the show to talk about their books are usually researchers or historians or people that have looked into this, whatever their topic is, but you are directly involved with this story. And that's kind of what makes your book really stand out uh, and be especially interesting. So how did you come to be involved in this? And what was your reaction to first getting pulled into this story? Well, it was totally happenstance. I was stationed at the law center uh, as a JAG defense lawyer at the time. They actually rotated our assignments between prosecuting and defending. I was defending at the time. And when these sailors were flown back to San Diego for trial, I was assigned to defend six of them. And my first reaction was the same reaction that I hope the readers have when they, when they hear about this story or listen to this. And that was the obvious discrimination of charges only against black sailors. But it just happened to be where I was at the time, and I was given the assignment to represent half a dozen of them. Was there any kind of strategy or, or specific reason that you and, and the people you were working with were chosen for this case, or was it just no, randomized? Absolutely happenstance. Uh, we were in what we call the defense wing. If it had been two months later, I might have been in the prosecution wing. So okay. absolutely happenstance. Uh, I should point out that in addition to the other JAG defense lawyers and JAG prosecutors, the NAACP came in early on because 
most of the black sailors asked for private defense counsel. It had to be Navy wouldn't pay for it, but that's part of the Uniform Justice Code. Uh, for obvious reasons, when they saw that only black sailors were charged, they were very wary of whether a Navy lawyer could defend them properly, would have, have be committed to their defense. And as a result, the NAACP hired half a dozen California lawyers in Southern California, and many of them sat beside us at the defense table uh, in these cases. So I, I can't say that the way that the incidents went down was very surprising to me. It, you know, I understood the way the events unfolded. I, I understood uh, the way in which these sailors came to be charged. Uh, and like I said, it's sad to say that I, I wasn't surprised. But what really surprised me was the way that the uh, prisoners were treated leading up to the trial. What were those conditions like and how unusual was it compared to the way that these issues were typically handled? That's a great question. And whenever I give talks about the book, I always point out this is a book about racial injustices, plural. And one of those injustices was pretrial confinement. When the incident was over and the ship re returned to Subic Bay, the captain of the ship put all of the defendants into the brig in Subic Bay uh, for almost three weeks before they were flown to San Diego. And then the convening authority, who happened to be the commanding officer of the Naval Air Station in San Diego, he put them all on the brig in San Diego. And for your listeners to appreciate this, pretrial confinement, this is before trial, presumed innocent, is virtually unheard of in the military and the Navy, except for extreme cases like murder or desertion, where the defendant might be expected to, to run. Uh, but that was not the case here. They were charged with simple riot and assault, simple assaults. And so for months prior to their individual trials, they were kept in confinement. And half of them were in maximum confinement, and half of those were in solitary. And my book does go into the details of that gross injustice and violation of the Uniform Code. And in fact, one of my clients attempted suicide while he was in solitary confinement. But fortunately, they were able to save him. He was trying to hang himself in the cell. So yes, that was a, a, a real travesty with regard to these cases. Yeah, there's some really heartbreaking stuff in the book. And, and I can't imagine how not only the defendants were dealing with this and, and you yourself kind of dealing with this. So as you moved on, you know, through preparing your cases and stuff, and there's multiple trials here, obviously, because you've got multiple defendants. How did your first trial go? The first time you get into the courtroom, were there any big surprises, uh, anything you didn't expect, or how did that go down? Well, that first trial was actually the second overall trial to go. This was in early January of 1973, and I was defending an Inscolaiot, Cleveland Mallory. And Cleveland Mallory uh, had been assaulted uh, while he was closing the ship's store, and three white sailors carrying a lead pipe assaulted him and broke several of his ribs. And the next morning, he tried to report that, and they refused to take a statement from him. And instead, a day later, they charged him with assault in a totally unrelated incident that he was never involved in. And I'm not talking as a defense lawyer about subtle alibis or self-defense. I'm saying literally was never there. But there was a white sailor who decided that he was going to take out the 
black sailors because he was severely prejudiced. My book goes into detail about that. And he committed outright perjury at that trial. And during the course of that, it was so obvious to everybody, except to the judge, apparently, that he was committing perjury. And I go into detail. My book contains a lot of quotes. Uh, it's a military history. And as you might expect from a, a lawyer standpoint, I wanted to have credibility and integrity with regard to the book and be even-handed. And so I go into quite some detail. And that particular white sailor said that he had a huge ship. There's no reason he would have ever met Cleveland Mallory because they were in totally different parts of the ship. But he said that he knew him and, in fact, befriended him in a bar in Hong Kong two months, three months before the incident. Well, it turns out I brought in the vision officer who testified Cleveland Mallory missed the sailing of the ship from Subic and never been to Hong Kong. That was how blatant the lie was. And yet he was convicted and given a bad conduct discharge. So that was, like I said, the second case to go to trial. And that was shocking to all of us, including to the national press. These cases were covered daily by New York Times, Washington Post, uh, on TV every day because it was open to the press. And it was so shocking that we knew that this could not go on. You know, and there's there's this fascinating episode after that trial, where as I am reading the book, I was thinking to myself, how has no one made a movie about this? This is this is absolutely fascinating stuff. And it was there was some undercover work following that trial. How did that work and how did that undercover work, what came out of it, affect the later trials? That's a great question. And if I didn't have all of the research and all the background, incidentally, I for 50 years, I kept thousands of original source documents of this that you'd think that I made it up for dramatic effect. But yes, the NAAC stepped forward and they put up the money for us to hire a private undercover agent. Uh, he was at that time just out of the FBI, former Marine officer, former FBI agent. He was working undercover in San Diego. He made friends with the perjurer and got him to admit on tape, secretly recorded, that he was heavily into drugs, that he hated black people, and that he had made up his entire story. And with those tapes, then the NAACP had a national press conference in New York City, and they were made public, and it really hit the national airwaves, and it had a dramatic effect on what followed. Um, the good news is, as a result of those perjury tapes, the conviction of my client was reversed. And it took several months for me to finally convince somebody to bring perjury charges against that white sailor, but he eventually stood trial and was convicted of perjury. So all these trials go on, and maybe you could sum up kind of what the, the overall, how, how many of these cases ended up kind of in the broad sweep. But after it's over... What was the Navy's response to all this? Were there any larger investigations? Were there any reforms kind of enacted in response? Well, that's the positive part, because by the time you get to this point in the, in the book, uh, I've had several people tell me they were angry, uh, they were upset uh, reading about these travesties. But here's where the tide begins turning. And it happened because of those perjury tapes, plain and simple. And the Navy was starting to get a lot of publicity about whether there was more perjury going on and this totally unjust conviction and so forth. 
And uh, so I would call that a backlash. And as a result, they started dropping charges in some cases, largely because white sailors, having heard that one of their members had been caught in perjury, uh, decided that they weren't sure of their identifications. And in addition, there were acquittals at trial. So there were half a dozen drop charges and acquittals. And of the 23 cases in San Diego, uh, there was not a single conviction uh, resulting in a bad conduct discharge. And this is significant. And uh, many of them did plead guilty to lesser charges, not to rioting, but to lesser charges for most in the most case. And the other thing that was very positive is some of the older listeners will remember Admiral Elmo Zumwalt from the 60s. He was came in two years early as the chief of naval operations, and, and he had an agenda of fighting against discrimination in the Navy and loosening the standards uh, with regard to dress and so forth for, for Navy personnel. And he really cracked down on senior officers following this incident and another incident three weeks later in uh, San Diego involving the sister ship USS Constellation when 120 black sailors effectively went on strike, had a sit down and refused to return to the ship. And he ordered major changes in the handling of cases. I, I give a lot of talks to uh, military groups and veterans, and I've had several of them tell me that they remember this well, that they had to take mandatory classes with regard to discrimination in all branches of the military. Uh, the book has been very well received by the military. I've had people ask me at the beginning, are you getting pushback from the Navy? And quite the contrary. Uh, well, you folks are a great example of this with the, the connections that you have. Three weeks ago, I was invited to the U.S. Naval Academy, and I spent three days on their campus and gave a, a, a talk on my book. And so I'm getting some really good publicity through the military. I've given talks at the Colorado Museum, Veterans Museum, the Wisconsin Veterans Museum, couple of weeks, I'll be talking to the Denver Vietnam Veterans Organization and so forth. So yes, some very positive results uh, flowing from this, uh, which started out very badly. Uh, one thing I haven't mentioned, but bears mentioning, is a, I devoted an entire chapter to it. The senior officers were withholding evidence from us, Defense Council, blatant violation of the military code. Well, that's true in the civilian world also. Prosecutors have to turn over documents. We had statements made by our clients that we could not get. Statements made uh, when they were being examined following charges and so forth. And we had uh, the NAACP went public with this about unjust convictions as a result of withheld documents. These just kept piling up. Of course, that gave rise to the title of the book, Against All Tides. I can't take credit for that title. That it was my publisher came up with that one. They tend to uh, do but, that. <laughs> <laughs> but you'd have to know more about the book to realize that Against All Tides, of course, is what we as defense counsel were facing from senior officers and uh, actually even beyond that. So it's been, it's been 50 years now. What drove you to write this book now? What is the legacy of this event, and what does it have to say for us today? Well, those are all great questions. I started writing the book 
uh, right after the trials. I was then serving as a military judge in my last year in uniform. I actually started saving documents at the time, ended up with five banker boxes of thousands of original source documents, trial transcripts, medical reports, investigation reports. Uh, each evening, as a matter of fact, during the trials, I dictated it to a cassette recorder, my thoughts of the day. And those dozens of cassette recordings were absolutely uh, helpful in terms of my eventually writing the book. Well, I started the book thinking I would finish it within a few years after I returned to my home state of South Dakota to practice law. But then life intervened and uh, it took me 49 years to again pick that up. Uh, as to why I did at that point, uh, part of it, frankly, was probably because what's happening in the country today, the racial divide and so forth. And I knew at the time it was a story that had to be told because it was so one-sided up to the point of the perjury tapes in terms of the press. Through no fault of the press, they were getting spoon-fed information. For example, Congress sent out a special subcommittee which had hearings for uh, several weeks before the trial started, but they only interviewed almost without exception, white sailors and senior officers. They would not let black sailors testify. And so they came out with an official report to the national press that this was a totally one-sided incident of only black sailors. Another reason why I felt I had to write the story is because it became very personal. I was very aggressive in my defense of my clients, as any lawyer should be. Uh, but in one instance, one of the NAACP lawyers wanted to fly out to the Kitty Hawk before it returned. It was on its way back just a couple of days out from San Diego. And I made arrangements for him to fly out. And the convening authority, the man who is in charge, the senior officer, Captain McKenzie, took that as an affront because, as he said, I had violated some obscure Navy regulation about civilians going aboard warships on their way home. And he said, I'm going to throw you off the cases. You will not be able to defend the cases. This is just a week before my first trial. And he had the authority to do it. Well, I fought back and I brought an order, a motion against him to have him thrown off the cases because he had violated the impartiality that convening authorities must have. Well, neither one of us were successful, but the result of my action, I was next threatened with a court martial. And that never occurred because cooler heads prevailed. And of course, the publicity would have been very negative for the Navy if they had brought court martial charges against the defense lawyer. But back to your question, uh, it kept uh, those boxes, my wife can attest, for 50 years. I've carted around yellowing pages of documents. Uh, and it might be interesting, I've actually had people tell me, including my agent, that I may be the only person with those original source documents. There was another book written about the incident about a dozen years ago, and he starts out by saying that in his book uh, that he was restricted because the Navy told him it destroyed all of the documents. And I have no question that they did, uh, but I'm sitting on these documents, and so I decided to put them uh, to, to use, and as I use the term, set the record straight, and it had to be balanced and fair. If I was going to criticize one-sided investigations, I, I was certainly not going to be guilty of writing a one-sided book. So it tells both sides. And I have over a thousand citations in the book. And like I said, I think I accomplished that because of the positive reaction I've gotten from the Navy and military and, and from folks like you. Well, we are very grateful that you kept all those records. And that's something that 
you know, as historians is always so interesting for us because like the person you mentioned who said they found out all these records were destroyed and that's kind of the end of where they, they can look. And that happens to us sometimes where we just hit these dead ends in the archives and who knows what documents are being kept privately where. And so for someone like yourself to come out and be like, Hey, I've got all these documents. Here's what I can tell you. I was there. Here's my experience. I made these tapes at the time. That's, that's such a wealth of, of great primary source information that can really shed light on this story. And it's important. It's an important time because what's happening, it's interesting that this event happens in 72, kind of as the Vietnam War is ending. There's a very similar incident in the Air Force at Travis Air Force Base the year before this in 71, uh, where there's some racial tension that kind of burst into violence. So what do you think? Is, is this part of something bigger that's happening? Is it a coincidence uh, that there's these kind of violent things happening right around this time as the draft is ending, moving to an all-volunteer force? Is that part of it, or or is it just a coincidence? Well, at the time this happened, uh, we were still active in terms of our draft, and so most of the sailors on board had received draft notice, and, and many had picked the Navy or other branches to avoid Vietnam. And so it was sort of a microcosm what was happening in society at the time. Um, I've been asked questions of can the situation improved since, and I'd like to think so, but I do have to tell you about 60 Minutes had a program uh, in the summer of 2021 about discrimination in the military. Um, mm-hmm. That was relatively recent, and they actually started a some kind of a task force, the Air Force did, looking into that. I think that might be available, I'm not sure, online. Uh, but at the time, just before this happened, a few months before, there was a Department of Defense task force that was looking into discrimination in military justice that came out with a report of that. And so fast forward 50 years, and we have another task force. Uh, I personally feel that we've made great strides in our country and in the military, but I don't have any unique insight uh, as to that that anybody else might have who's better situated, who's currently in the military or, or whatever. I'll add, you know, I typically start these books about a week in advance so that I can uh, write questions and it'll, you know, it'll take me a week or so to, to read, um, uh, to read a book. But I started reading this, you know, one evening uh, and I wasn't 20 or 30 pages into it before I was turning to my wife saying, look at this. Uh, and then I finished the book the next day. Um, uh, I know it's kind of a cliche to say that, Hey, this is something I couldn't put down. Uh, but that that is a rare case for me, and th- this is one of the the few books I've read uh, in my life where I can honestly say I did not want to put it down. I wanted to keep turning the pages to see what happened because, like I said, it, it read like a, a movie script. It was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I had that same exact experience. Well, I'm a first time author, and I, I I really appreciate those comments coming from you. What I want to do is get the story out and. Each opportunity I have, like this one here this evening, is very special for me. And I I really appreciate the opportunity for you folks inviting me here today. Absolutely. Well, for any other readers out there who want to pick this up and uh, judge for themselves just how much of a page turner it is, it's Against All Tides, the untold story of the USS Kitty Hawk race riot by Marv Shrewy from Lawrence Hill Books. Uh, Marv, where else can we find more of your stuff online? I'd encourage people to look up the book website. Uh, it's 
and it contains uh, multiple photographs that did not find their way into the book. But the book website is marvtrui.com, just my name, M-A-R-V-T-R-U-H-E.com. And it has a lot of insights and details that uh, we didn't talk about here. And it might give your listeners a chance to make their own decision as to whether it's the kind of book they'd be interested in in picking up. That's fantastic. Brian, where can we find more of you online? Uh, so you can find me at Twitter at Brian Lastly, and you can also find me on my personal website, www.brianlastly.com. And Mike, how about yourself? I am, as always, at mwhankins.com. All of us are online at balloonstodrones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. Please send us an email or feel free to submit an article to us for consideration of publication at balloonstodrones.com. Thank you to everybody, and we will see you next time.